Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this version of the What's Next Live podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure to welcome Colin Breyer to the show. My name's Tiffany Bova, and I have to say, when you reach out for sort of your dream guest, Colin is definitely one of them because his sort of experience as being the chief of staff for the amazing Jeff Bezos, the former, I guess, CEO, uh, coming up here pretty quick of Amazon. I was just so thrilled that he said yes to join us. So welcome to the show, Colin. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show, Tiffany. It, it's really a pleasure. But before we get started into the good stuff, um, I do something that I call bullish and bearish, and it's just an opportunity for us to get the juices flowing and have some fun with some fun questions. All right, you ready? Yeah. All right, the first one, bullish or bearish? Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. First one, colonizing the moon. I'm not going to pick Mars, but let's colonize the moon. Bullish or bearish? I'm going bullish on that one. All right, all right. Let's go with that. Okay, how about virtual reality e-commerce? Uh, bearish in the short term, I, I have to say. All right. Oh, All right. still ways to go, but I think there'll be we'll we'll try it out. Well, it'll take a little while to get going. All right. Well, you know, if anybody knows, I guess that your opinion probably <laughs> will carry a little bit of weight. You might know a thing or two about e-commerce. All right. The third one, which is also sort of a little bit more fun, uh, flying cars. Oh, I'm definitely bullish on that. All right. All right, Colin. Well, thanks for playing with us. <laughs> it's always just a fun way to get it started. But please, people who are joining us, everybody across the platforms, please share with us where you're joining us from and start posting your questions for Colin as we're going along. But this is meant to be super interactive. I'm just sort of the vehicle to bring questions to uh, to Colin today. But why don't we get started? I think, you know, the first thing I'd say when I sort of describe the chief of staff as a role, people are a little confused as to what that actually means. Um, and so, you know, I'd love to start there, Colin, like, you know, what is that mean being, you know, an executive like Jeff Bezos's kind of right hand chief of staff? Well, so I did not know when he asked me, I uh, said, do you, do you, Andy's, Andy Jassy is transitioning to a different role. And so I, I sat down and I asked him and I said, well, what, what does this role mean and, and what does uh, success look like for you? And he said uh, two things. One is, uh, you know, just helping him on a daily basis be, you know, be a better CEO. A lot of it was making sure the right people and teams and uh, issues get surfaced. And there's a lot of, you know, prep work and follow up on the bookends of the day that I did with, with teams to make sure that, uh, you know, it was productive both for the teams and for Jeff. But then he said the second and more important thing was that by the end of this, uh, you know, tenure in the role that we'd be able to model each other's thinking. And so I, I would get a really good feel for how Jeff approached problems and would want to scale the company because after that I would go somewhere else in, in inside the company and uh, you know operate independently. So at some companies, a chief of staff role is uh, could be a longer term and you you know you're just there for the CEO. But this primarily was a training role to go somewhere else in the company. And uh, so I got a, a great you know I would always ask Jeff. Uh, in the hallways, well, why why were you doing this, or what were you thinking? And so it was a pretty fortunate uh, uh, spot to be in at, in a, a very pivotal time for Amazon. Well, so you know, let's 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 work uh, on the book, kind of working backwards. I love the title, by the way, because I think uh, you know a lot of was sort of work from the customer backwards. But I'd love to kind of begin with what the 
concept was of working backwards? Because I'm going to guess it's broader than just that one statement. Yes. Yeah, so when uh, my co-author Bill Carr and I, we we get the question all the time: How does Amazon work? How do they operate? And it was hard to distill down into an elevator pitch. And we saw a lot of um, commentary from the outside looking in about uh, bits and pieces of of what Amazon was doing. And they were mostly focused on things like Amazon Prime, Echo, AWS, Amazon Web Services. But, you know, those are outputs. And what we really wanted to do was, you know, pull back the covers a bit and say, inside Amazon, how does it really work? Because the what I, I mentioned, very, they're very different businesses, you know, Prime, AWS, and devices and services and digital streaming. But they were all um, created using what Jeff has coined the invention machine, which is Amazon's 14 leadership principles and then a set of five scalable, repeatable processes that Amazon used to create, um, you know, start all these things from ideas on a whiteboard, essentially, to become very large household uh, names and, you know, tens of billions of dollars in, in revenue per year. So we wanted to really um, explain these for the next generation of business leaders, because the, the exciting thing is that these things don't only work for just $100 billion a quarter behemoth. They work for small organizations and large organizations. They work across a number of different industries. And so we really wanted to codify that to help the next generation of business leaders. So maybe you could unpack those things, that kind of framework of those couple of five and three, like where you really focused. Yeah. So the the first thing is just Amazon has 14 leadership principles and, you know, which is more, more than most. They're not just posters on the wall. Um, but what Amazon did is they really um, stitched and, and wove those uh, principles into the basic every you know something that people do at the company every day, either hiring or developing new products. So it all starts from there. You know, we we encourage companies to get their own leadership principles, really think about them and codify them, because uh, that that's what makes companies unique, and that's also. Um, how come, you know, the first principles people can rely on when you're making those decisions when uh, the CEO or the leader is not in the room. So you want to make sure those are very well understood. And then the, the five processes are, there are things that any growing company ha, you know, has to do and, and challenges they face. Amazon just came up with different solutions, sometimes radically different solutions, and then sometimes building on the shoulders of those that came before us. And those uh, five areas are hiring. Amazon has a very specific hiring process called the bar raiser process. How do you get people on board that reinforce your culture rather than, um, you know, change your culture? And, um, you know, it, it removes bias from there. It's a data um, driven exercise to remove bias to try to get those people on who will reinforce your culture. And then the second process is what Amazon calls single threaded leadership and separable teams. So you know, Amazon's grown quite a bit, obviously has 1.3 million employees, but uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and his management team really thought about how do we organize ourselves internally so as we grow, we can remain nimble and you know, fast and, and also true to our roots. And a lot of that is single-threaded leadership. And then another process is just Amazon doesn't use slides to make decisions in meetings, they use narratives. So we go through that uh, and talk about how the, it evolved and, and why that's an important. And then the working backwards is a very specific process. It's the name of our book, but it's a very specific process on how Amazon takes an idea and then vets it with a group of people and decides whether to bring it forward to market. 
and uh, you know, starting from the customer experience and working back from there. And then the last one is just how Amazon measures all of these businesses. And that again is, uh, I would say, atypical. Um, Amazon focuses inordinately on the input metrics, which are, are controllable input metrics. And those are the things that we uh, define, you know, if, if you do those things right, you'll have the desired uh, you know, out outcome in your business. And the outcome uh, output metrics are things like revenue, free cash flow, number of new customers. But if you can't really focus on those because you can't control those directly. You can, can control things like how much, uh, how many new products did we add to our catalog that we're ready to ship to customers in two days or less? Um, have, have we lowered our cost structure enough so we can afford to lower prices? Um, things, you know, th things like that. So we go through into detail and talk about those five processes, plus how the leadership principles form. So you can do those in your own organization. Well, what I love about that is a couple of things, right? I think where, at least in my experience, where organizations get it wrong is I love the working backwards from the press release. Like you didn't actually kind of use that word, but if you're going to launch something like write the press release, because what's the value to the customer? But then tying it all the way back in that single, th single thread to kind of collaborate between multiple teams. But I think the Achilles heel where people get it wrong is in that metric, in that measurement, that it isn't something that tangibly people can see themselves aligning towards or working towards and how their role plays a part in the overall success of that product or that group. Is that is that a fair assumption? Yes. And and it, it's also it. it um, is indicative about, you know, there's long-term thinking and, and customer obsession are part, you know, some of the leadership uh, principles, ownership and long-term thinking. And you can see those play out in, in particular in, in the metrics. You know, if you took, if you were to go to an Amazon weekly business review for the e-commerce business, you would look at, and you would look through the, the uh, metrics, the vast majority of them would be customer facing metrics. So they would answer the question, what did our customers experience last week? Was it better than the week before? Because you know, Amazon knows if they relentlessly focus on improving those, customers will reward you, trust you more and and you know you and 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 buy more eventually on on the platform. And that in turn drives the 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 revenue. And then in terms of the working backwards process, that is customer obsession at its heart. It doesn't, it starts with the question about the customer rather than a lot of companies use what's called the skills forward approach. What are we good at? Um, what are our core competencies and how can we nudge into an adjacent market? Um, you know, you can use a SWOT analysis, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. But the word customer often isn't mentioned in those discussions. And so Amazon just inverted that and said, from the very beginning of the idea, we are going to keep the customer front and center. And we'll never forget that customer experience to find the problem, explain the solution to the customer. And if you don't like that press release, you don't move forward. The project doesn't get greenlit. You have to rewrite it again until you're comfortable that you have an idea or that the idea is not worth pursuing right now or maybe not big enough to pursue right now. Well, I'm going to also guess you don't always get it right, which, you know, we know that that's the case because it's not possible. Yeah. Um, and so even though, right, you've gone through the process, you've worked backwards, you've got the press release, you think, okay, we're ready to go. We launch and then it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, uh, predicting consumer behavior is a very tricky thing to do. And it's meant to, the this process, it's meant to reduce risk and increase your chances of, of, hits. But if you don't have failures, it's any failures, it's a sign that you're probably not moving fast enough. So at, 
at Amazon, there's a decision making, there's, you know, a decision making framework called that one way or two way doors. A one way door is when you go through that door, it's really hard to reverse that decision. So where are we going to put a next fulfillment center or where are you going to build the next airport? And this is Amazon doesn't do this in, in a city. That's a big decision. You, you, you sign some long term commitments there. But launching um, other features, you, if it's a two-way door, you don't have to use that heavy decision-making framework. You can just go try it, and if it doesn't work, you go back out, you know, the the other side of that two-way door, and you try something different. But um, Amazon likes to make decisions with about eighty percent of the information that you really would want. Um, so it's a little uncomfortable. You have to be uh, comfortable dealing with ambiguity and knowing that you're going to make some mistakes some of the time. And so there are specific processes and uh, about how you handle mistakes and how you can learn from them too. But mistakes, if you want to be an, an inventive company, you you have to just accept that there will be some some failures. You know, it's not an experiment if you know it's going to work before you conduct the experiment. Well, and how were the executives or leaders <clears throat> that maybe found themselves in that situation, right? Where kind of checked all the boxes in planning, it launches and then, you know, three, six, eight, 10 months later, whatever your time frame is, time horizon is, that you realize it is time to go back out the other side, maybe try it again. It isn't right or completely uh, eliminate it. Uh, what does that look like for a leader? And the reason I'm asking that is so many, so many companies ask this question, like, how do I reward and measure failures? And, you know, more as a learning opportunity than, as shaming a leader, right, or a team. And so what, what did you guys do to actually make that feel like a safe place to try and fail? Well, the first thing that you have to do is you have to be comfortable talking about your failures and, you know, what, what were the mistakes that were made in front of a, as wide an audience as possible. And you do that, one, not only to learn and go, you know, the, we use a technique borrowed from Toyota called the five whys, you know, to figure out, you ask, well, why did this happen? And then you keep peeling back until you get to the root causes. But you want to learn uh, so you don't make the mistake again. But you also want to shout it to a broad audience so they don't make the same mistake so they can learn something too. You know, there's something called a correction of errors report at Amazon. This would be more for if part of the website or service went down. Um, you have to, it's a very clinical, uh, in-depth uh, correction of errors report where you say what happened and you identify the root causes. And then you say, here's what we're, we're going to put in place um, so these uh, defects don't travel downstream anymore and never happen again. With with so that's one type of failure. Another type of failure is something like the Fire Phone, where you know thought it was a good idea and it was worth trying, but it it didn't work out. You have to know when you need to be stubborn and say when do we do Fire Phone two, or <laughs> to say. Um, hey, we didn't get the first iteration right, but um, we're going to stick with it. An example of, so the Fire Phone, we just tried it and didn't do a Fire Phone 2, but for uh, digital uh, video in particular, there was a product that very few people probably remember. The first foray was called Amazon Unbox, where you could watch videos. It had to be on your your computer and um, it, it didn't take off with customers, but we didn't say, oh, we tried digital video. It's not working, so we'll move on to something else. It was a seven-year experiment that eventually became Prime Video and Amazon Studios. So you have to know when to be stubborn and stick with something and innovate um, on behalf of the customer and create a great experience. Or we tried it, and it's you know this isn't so. It, we we're going to move on and try something completely different. Well, I think you nailed it. Right, one of the biggest 
things I feel and hear when I'm meeting with executives talking about this kind of change is what you just said. I'm in love with the status quo. What we're doing now is working or we tried it in the past. It didn't work, which was just your example. Um, and the other one uh, that I you know, sort of did a, a lot of work in my own book it is really about this. They just didn't give it enough time to take hold. Like they think that 30 days, 90 days, six months, depending on the product, that if it doesn't just take off, boom, let's kill it. Where where, you know, for anyone listening, I don't know if you caught that, right? But Prime and Studio, it was a seven year journey. Now, mind you, Amazon has a big revenue engine that can afford to bankroll something a little bit longer than others. But what's the lesson in that not pulling the plug too quickly and or hanging on and continuing to develop? There are a couple of lessons there. One is that you have to calibrate your level level of investment to what you can afford. So the the and I'll, the, the example with um, uh, prime or with video, digital video, and then also digital music. Those teams were relatively small, um, and Amazon could afford that investment over a, a several years until it became big and it started to take off and gain traction. That's when you saw those um, the, the teams and the investment start to increase a lot more in terms of buying more original content, opening up you know Amazon Studios down down in LA. Um, but you know, so you have to calibrate your in investment there. I would say is is one thing. And then um, you know, I, one one of the reasons we wrote the book is because there, there we've seen a lot of common misconceptions about Amazon. Oh, well, you know, they can afford to you know, pump unlimited amount of money. Software engineers are jumping in the boat to join uh, you know, Amazon. You can get anything they want. It, it was hard to get resources um, at, at, at Amazon. You, had, you don't get extra points, bonus points for headcount. You get more scrutiny, if anything else. But, um, but long-term thinking, you have to allow these seeds time to grow and, and decide you know, and notice whether they'll become big businesses. But the, people think long-term thinking often takes you longer to get to your goal. But that I, we found that hasn't been the case. Long-term thinking actually more often than not can get you to your end goal faster. And the reason is because you're not zigzagging. You don't try something and stop that experiment before it, it you know, you, you learn something and then you uh, zig or zag the other way. And so you're not getting to uh, your end goal. And, or if you're, um, you know, you listen to pundits or analysts saying, here's what we need to do for the, you know, to hit our quarterly goals. You're typically not creating a whole lot of value there. You may be bringing demand in from the the future period into the current period, but it's a zero sum game. You're just in, you're in the same hole you were at the start of the next month or the next quarter. And two, two data points, you know, Amazon was the first fastest company from zero to a hundred billion dollars in revenue. And then um, there was another, uh, you know, company that went from zero to ten billion dollars faster than than Amazon did, and that was Amazon Web Services. As if you took that as a standalone company, and AWS did not have uh, a bunch of tailwinds from Amazon, the company. They were very, very different businesses, very different customer sets, and so. Uh, but there was all those both were built with long term thinking in mind, and they they grew very fast. Yeah, we've got a couple questions uh, from our listeners. So thank you guys for bringing them in. Here's the first one uh, from Anthony. I wonder where most companies get customer first wrong. So where do you think companies get that customer first mentality wrong? And he says, I'd be willing to bet that most companies think of themselves that way, but just can't don't execute accordingly. I would agree, by the way, Anthony. But what do you think, Colin? 
So I, there are two areas. One is, is in terms of um, how you measure things in uh, existing businesses, uh, you really need to, you have so many proxies between yourself and the customers. So you need to figure out ways to, at, at a very granular level, know what your customer experienced yesterday or last week and to be able to tell that story. And, and the people need to internalize that. Amazon had a number of of ways to do that, not only with metrics, but you know, every two years you had to go be a customer service agent for a couple of days. You, you actually had to go work in in the fulfillment center, so you got to see, uh, you know, r really how things worked. And those, even that's great for internal teams who are building tools for uh, CS and the warehouse workers. The other thing is just how you do, uh, how you vet ideas, and that is the working backwards approach is all all about. You can't move forward until you've clearly defined the customer problem that you want to solve and, and the solution that you have. It's not, let's just try and launch a bunch of things, throw it out there and see what sticks. Um, because that's just, it often becomes more random noise. And so those are two areas where, you know, and I think that's the difference between customer focus and customer obsession. So, you know, there, there is a, um, that I learned the difference between those two at Amazon. We tried to put some examples there in the book. Well, great. And I, and I think you're right. I, you know, I'm, I'm also a fan of uh, customer centricity should never be at sort of the expense of the employees either, right? It has to be this kind of symbiotic uh, relationship. All right, here's the next one. Uh, this one is from Harold Mann. How does this Amazon approach differ from how Apple chooses to listen or not listen to initial customer feedback? You don't have to. You don't have to talk about Apple specifically, but why do you think you know just industry wide it's a little bit different? Unless you want to mention Apple specifically. So I, you know I can't really uh, comment on specifically how Apple does it, uh, just simply because I don't know. But uh, you know, at, as a leader with any Amazon uh, feature or product, you're you're expected to know it better than than anyone else. And you know, part of it is talking with customers. You know, whenever uh, I was managing businesses at Amazon, I would just read the customer feedback. Um, I'd, I'd talk to customer service and, and you know reps and say, hey, well, what are the top issues you're facing this week? I'd get look at both anecdotes as well as the data. And that was something that was a little surprising. The bigger Amazon got, the more focus it actually placed on anecdotes. And just, you know, and those are real horror stories that you read in front of a group and say, you know, we let customers down this way. And then you you see if that matches with the data that you're collecting. And if they don't, you look at it with a skeptical eye and figure out which you know where where that broke down. So I think looking at both anecdotes and and, and data is something that Amazon they take both very seriously. Whenever um, people compare brands, I always I say you know yes obviously there's some commonality to very large brands you know very well known some of the best brands in the world, but also we have to make sure that we understand that the customer set may be different and obviously maybe some of the same and the job to be done, right? Or the pain point that you're trying to solve for the customer may be different. So replicating what other people do, you know, and I often use Amazon as an example, like just replicating what Amazon does does not mean you're going to just be wildly successful. I mean, you have to sort of put your own lens on it. Would you agree? Yeah. A lot of these copycat strategies, if you say, I want to be the Amazon of X or the Apple of, of Y, um, they're probably best suited to be that. They just haven't gotten around to it yet. So you need to figure out what unique value you can add. And, um, you know, a, a great example is we 
we knew that Apple was going to be launching iTunes uh, for, for Windows. It was the first time Apple had ever built something for Windows. So they, it was a signal they were going all in on, on digital music. We did not come back after learning that and, and to try to put a copycat music service and have a, you know, a, an iPod uh, device and, and, and some, some software. We sat back and said, well, where, where can we add value? And you know, as much as we would have liked to have done something, we had to look at our own capabilities at the time and said, we can't really add a whole lot at this day you know, to digital music. We're going to focus on, on books, right? You know, creating the digital book. Uh, area because we have unique skills and um, and and we can make real progress or customers on that area where I think a lot of uh, companies would say let's get a fire drill project we're gonna slap something out that's you know iTunes and iPod version 0.5 and Apple's already on version two by the time that thing gets launched and that's another example of short-term thinking where you it's a, that's a pretty big um, zig where you instead of marching to say getting in this digital space it's going to be many years and we are going to methodically plot along and and get to where we need to be for customers well you know there's uh, so many uh, references to Amazon in my book but there's two quotes I I often refer to pretty regularly. Um, and it was the opening quote uh, of my of one of the chapters of my book, which was uh, said by Jeff Bezos that, you know, if we and I'm paraphrasing, but if we have a, a good quarter today, it's because of decisions we made two years ago. And I think people miss that point, right, that they think in quarter, for the most part, you can make huge adjustments to either recover from a growth stall or put your foot on the gas on accelerating growth or whatever it may be. Um, how did you frame that up, you know, internally? Because I think that goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, right? A two-year window, not all small businesses, other, you know, anyway, can hold on that long potentially. So, how do you reconcile that for for companies who might be smaller? It gets back to you have to know, and you have to know what you can afford to invest, and you know, and if you get to the point where you were betting the company on something. That's just a risky endeavor, and you know I would encourage you not to get to that choice. But you know, place I would encourage you to place your smaller bets be, um, and earlier, so you don't get to the point where if this doesn't work, we're going to run out of money. And one reason why is that uh, you don't need too many bets to pay off that can have outsized returns that can pay for a lot of the those uh, smaller failures, but. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I, I sound a bit like a broken record. Um, you know, if you focus on what is good for the customers in the the long term, and you and you look at what resources you have to invest, um, it it will work out more often than not. Versus looking at what's the shiny new thing or what people say we should do in in that quarter, because you're just wasting your scarce resources. They could be capital. They could be software engineering resources, whatever they happen to be, to work on a short-term thing that's not building long-term value for the customer. So I would say discipline, uh, quite honestly, to, to stick with that, um, you know, that, that philosophy and those principles, that customer obsession and long-term thinking will get you there faster and it will get you there cheaper too, because you're not going to be wasting money on things that, aren't, that, that are off path. Right. And it's hard when when you have all these people telling you, no, you should actually you, you have to hit the number. You don't see at Amazon an executive pounding on the table saying we have to hit our revenue quarter for this number. You may see them pounding their fist on the table saying 
we did not add enough selection to the catalog as we should have. That was completely under our control. We made a mistake. How are we going to organize so we can increase selection or reduce delivery times, you know, to where we need them to be? That's what you. Those are. The, that's the difference between focusing on controllable inputs versus those output metrics. Oh, I couldn't agree more, right? Because you know, one of the things that I'm a firm believer on is that a lot of the inability for companies to do what you just said is internal inertia and not something that's happening on the outside. Now, mind you, we've just. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's a black swan event. It's a very unusual and disruptive. All things normal, not obviously what we're dealing with at the moment. That would be true. Where right now it's such an external, uncontrollable situation. You have very little you can do but figure out how do you remain relevant and consistent and deliver what your customers need today so that you can obviously be there for the, them in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other thing that I, um, I want to cover off. There's sort of two more things. One is, and I use this often, is uh, you know the fact that you don't use slides to present. And you know, for someone who lives and breathes slides, like I, I hope everybody starts to take that, you know, to to heart. Um, but communicating um, and storytelling and galvanizing and inspiring, if you will, other people to really see the vision. That's a very unique skill. And so what, what happens internally to get people prepared, potentially, because some of these executives have grown up giving presentations that way. And then now they show up, as you said, right? It has to sort of culturally be a fit, but how do they do it now going forward? What's that chasm they have to cross? So the, the first thing is that it's harder to write an initial six page memo or narrative that, you know, that narratives mean six page memos, memos typically at Amazon. And it forces the, the writer or the writing team to have just clarity of thought before they get in front of an audience. So you really have to get your argument and your story straight. It, and you can't do it the night before. Also, um, you know, you need to write it, set it aside, show it to other people. And, and have a well thought out argument. And the, the whole point about narratives is, is to get as much information over to the people you're presenting in order to make a better decision. And, the, and so we realized, uh, and it was in 2004, that we were using the wrong tool to make better decisions. And so that, you know, that clarity of thought, just the pixel density, it's you know, seven to nine times the pixel density. People read faster than they talk. You can handle multi-causal arguments better in a narrative than, than slides. What you're, in effect, what you're doing is you're giving the audience, and in this case, it's the reader, 10 times more information at least, and, and you know, in the same unit of time. An hour time spent in a presentation is the same as an hour in, in a narrative meeting, but you just get so much more information. So you're increasing your chances of making a better decision. So that's why Amazon switched to them and how these meetings work. They're kind of bizarre if you have never seen one before. You know, people are chit chatting and then, you know, if it's virtual, they'll say, okay, let's start. And then a document is circulated or if you're in, in the room, it's passed out and it's 20 minutes of silence where you're just reading the narrative, you're making your comments either online and, um, the nice thing about this is it also removes bias because you're not listening to what the most senior person in the room is saying because they haven't said anything yet. So you're you're adding your your comments in, and sometimes great ideas come from unexpected places in 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 the audience. And so you have 20 minutes of what's happening really, if you looked at it through different lenses, a massive amount of information is being transferred to the, the other group. And uh, and then you have a 40 minute really in-depth discussion on, you know, if it's a decision-making forum or if it's a working backwards as a type of, uh, you know, 
a narrative, a PR FAQ. You're just you're you're having those high quality discussions, and you leave the room with a better product idea than you came in with. So that that's how those meetings work. And to get started, you know, you can have you can look at some examples of great narratives, and then you can see where the quality bars. That helps a lot. If you don't have those, you just get started, which is what we did at Amazon. And the first ones were not that good. I'm I'm here to tell you, um, you know, I, I read some of them, I wrote some of them, and but you you do get better. And it's the clarity of thought that really matters. It's not the flowery prose that matter. Well, and I think there's so many lessons in what you just said. You know, so I, I you know I might challenge those that are watching right to not make it a six page because I think that might be a little daunting out of the gate. But maybe it's a one page narrative. Um, but I love the silence. I love the share the information, let everybody read it and absorb it um, and then discuss it. Uh, and, and having this kind of open dialogue uh, around the substance of what it is you're trying to actually accomplish. I think there's so much power in that. Uh, and I also hear that, you know, in in besides the two pizza rule, which I think is so famous, right? It's the kind of leave the leave the chair empty at the head of the table for these big conversations as sort of representing the customer. I love that as well. Yeah, um, you know, anything you can do to remove bias and gather more data at, at, and whatever process, it, it really helps. And these presentation meetings, afterwards, if someone asks, well, how did the meeting go? You typically, if it's a slide presentation, you say, oh, the presenter was great. It was really engaging. Or this presenter was really boring. And I couldn't wait for the meeting to end. At the end of the day, customers don't actually care how your meeting went. They care that you made the right decision in order to build a product that's going to make their lives better. And so, you know, that you need to organize. And that's the difference about organizing around for your customer and your customer's convenience, not your own uh, convenience to say, well, it's easier to write uh, a, a slide and, and, and give a, a, you know, a presentation than it is to spend a couple of days writing a narrative. And yeah, you know, if you have a 30 minute meeting, it's a three page narrative or, you know, one, you start with one page, that is a good idea too. We have, we have one pagers that we used at Amazon too. And that, you know, the one page press release is a great example. Everyone knows what a good press release looks like. And everyone knows after reading a press release, whether they would buy the product or not. So use that, you know, just start using that to figure out, is this a product that's worthy of developing? Well, you know, as we start to, you know, wrap this up, we've got uh, one one more question here coming in. Let's, let's share it. It's from Summer. Uh, do you encounter fear to change in thread leadership? How does Amazon counter fear to ambiguity? Fear to change. Fear to change in thread leadership. Well, I think that Amazon uh, and I, I, this is a comment I, like moving around to different areas. Um, so Amazon does encourage that and you know rotating leaders. And if you look at some of the Steve Kessel, for instance, started the digital group, and you know devices was a big part of that. He knew nothing about building devices, but he was well steeped in the Amazon principles and culture. So, you know, I, I think that figuring out what makes your company special and how you make decisions and um, having someone who knows that well, and then moving them into a different area, you can pick up a lot of these uh, functional skills or later on. And some of the best leaders at Amazon um, have moved around to, to in several different areas, and I think they're they're better for it. So, um, there, you know, it is, it takes a little while to, you know, to, to get uh, used to a new situation, but it, it works out pretty well as a company, you build up bench strength too. 
Yeah, and I think that that's what's really critical, right? It's giving everybody the opportunity, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, right? Try it, fail, learn, keep going, uh, getting better at the one page, the two page, the six page, the, you know, how to do the present presentation, right? How to write the press release, like how to engage with other groups. I mean, I think all of this, you know, especially over the last year, you know, uh, in wrapping this up, what, what has been the most surprising to you um, from, I guess when you began, you know, at Amazon to the decision to sort of write the book and and move on, like what was the most surprising thing to you? And I know that's a hard thing to sort of put your thumb on because you say, oh, there's probably a hundred things, but what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say, what was the most surprising thing to you that you thought it was going to be this and it was so not, it was much more that. Well, I, you know, I think one of the most surprising things and it I honestly did not pop out as crystal clear until after or during the writing of the book was, you know, the, Amazon has built some phenomenal uh, products and services that, you know, really, I think, make customers' lives better. But I think one of the legacies that will last as long or longer is this, what Jeff termed this invention machine, it's advances in management science on how to build and operate organizations. And that is something that's a lot, that's super useful for a number of different organizations. These hockey pucks and cylinders we have in our uh, kitchen that we talk to right now, we're going to laugh at how primitive they are sometime soon. I don't know if it's next year or two years from now, but what Amazon has created with this, uh, you know, how do you build a long-term thinking, customer-obsessed, inventive company that really takes pride in the operational excellence and what it does to, to build something you can be proud to tell your grandkids about? I think that was the surprising thing to me is that that in itself is probably one of Amazon's most enduring legacies. Well, you know, this is, I could keep going, you know, but in respect of everybody's time, like I'd keep going and going and going because I have so many things I'd love to talk to you about. But we've had people join us from Toronto and London and Florida and California and Senegal. Uh, it's, so it has just been amazing. Thank you to everybody joining for all the questions that we had, Colin, for your wonderful uh, willingness to share working backwards with all of us and your experiences at Amazon, I think. Everybody could take away a little something, no matter if you're an entrepreneur, startup, mid-sized business, large, you know, there's only a handful that are as big as Amazon, but I think there's lots of lessons to be learned. So uh, with that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for joining me on the What's Next podcast. And what parting words would you like to share with everybody, except for obviously read the book, which is in the top <laughs> right, <laughs> besides that? Well, if, you know, especially if you're a small organization, you know, put the effort in up front to define who you are and how you make decisions because you need, and then how you bring people on board to reinforce that. Um, you know, when we've seen a lot of organizations grow from five to 10 or 10 to 100 and they say it's not like it used to be, it's usually because you haven't really codified exactly the, your decision, your principles, and then figure out how to bring in people who uh, reinforce that. Because otherwise you're going to get a culture, whether you know, as you grow, it's just, will, will it be the one that you want? And you have to put some deliberate work into that. And I think the keep it day one, always stay focused on that is, you know, uh, a thread that I think everyone refers to. So again, Colin, thank you so much for your willingness to share your wonderful insights with us and some of the great findings from working backwards. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe uh, and make sure you pick up a, up a copy of Working Backwards, I guess on amazon.com. <laughs> Anywhere, any bookstore is fine. No, there, there, there are more places than just Amazon too. All right, great. Thank you, Colin. All right, thanks, Tiffany. Thanks everyone. <laughs>